So tonight, I want to answer the question, if there is no self, who is wandering in samsara? And the topic of the talk is escape from samsara. I've handed out to each one of you a, uh, a picture of a Tibetan tanka. And a Tibetan tanka is a painting, usually in a scroll. It's a painting on cloth that uh, depicts a teaching uh, of the Dharma. And some of the tankas that you'll see in stores, in uh, temples, and down at the Paia Dharma Center and other places, some of them are a very simple uh, uh, seemingly simple uh, uh, pictures and therefore uh, general or public consumption. But there are a whole range of uh, tankas which depict uh, more esoteric or secret teachings or teachings which aren't generally available to the public and they're kept covered. Um, I'm not sure which this one is. I think it's probably more one of the secret teachings or one of the teachings that's a little more difficult to access. But nevertheless, it is a teaching on uh, the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination. Now, samsara is uh, the, the term or the word given to the endlessly cycling uh, of cyclic existence, looking for happiness in all forms of uh, life and behavior. And it encompasses, from one perspective, it encompasses the 31 planes of existence that the Buddha recognized. And from a similar perspective, it encompasses multiple lifetimes, if you will, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes that a single stream of consciousness uh, goes through, wandering through samsara. So it is a, samsara refers to just this vastness of uh, time and space and the immensity of the journey that we're on to awaken from the delusion of misunderstanding samsara. Samsara means flowing on or faring on. It is an endless uh, and inevitable uh, wandering, if you will. It can be understood in terms of planes of existence and multiple lifetimes. It can also be understood <clears throat> as we've experienced it here in moment to moment life, the unfolding of life moment by moment where in each moment something arises, it takes life. Our relationship to it conditions a sense of self which appears, relates to this object, and in time, when the object passes, that sense of self passes. And so, in one, from one perspective, 
we have lived multiple lifetimes today. Our relationship to lunch and to our sitting and a painful sitting and your interview and a check-in and the, it's just, we've gone through innumerable experiences, different experiences of ourself and how we manifested and what the world looked like to us from that particular uh, conjunction of conditions. And it's still going on. It just goes on and on and on. So the question arises, because we've heard the teaching, not so much on this retreat, but in other retreats, that all of this is being done without there being anyone that it's happening to. And so the question naturally arises to many of us, if there is no self, who is wandering in samsara? And when Sayadaw Upandita was asked that question, he said, oh, that, that is a really good question. <laughs> and he went on to say, if you think about it too much, it will give you a big headache. <laughs> But to understand any answer to that question, we have to understand what are called the two truths, the two perspectives of this reality. There is the conventional, ordinary understanding of what is transpiring here. Conventionally speaking, we're in the seventh or sixth day of a, of a silent meditation retreat. There's a couple of teachers, there's a few staff, there's a number of retreatants or yogis and receiving teachings and practicing teachings and it's all happening on a little green peninsula on the north shore of an island called Maui in the middle of the Pacific in the 21st century on planet Earth. And that's conventionally speaking, that's what's happening. But in the absolute experiential understanding of what's happening, there's heat and cold and pressure and vibrating and hearing and memories and planning and liking, disliking, irritation, acceptance, joy, sorrow, fear, depression, and anxiety. Both are happening, or both views of reality are happening at the same time. It's not either or, it's both. Conventionally speaking, this is what's happening. But experientially speaking, there's just pixels of stuff being known moment after moment. Nargajuna was a Buddhist monk in the second century India. And he wrote uh, uh, this little poem or this little verse called Awakening, translated by Stephen Batchelor. It says, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on convention, you cannot disclose the sublime. And without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. It is said when this painting 
of the Wheel of Life was first shown to the Tibetan king at that time, and it was explained to him, he immediately understood the teachings of this Wheel of Samsara and the escape from it, and he became enlightened. So, listen carefully. <laughs> you never know. Your time might be now. In this picture, the general shape of it is there's a circle of multiple concentric circles being held in the grip of a fierce-looking being, outside of which in the upper right-hand corner is the Buddha pointing to a plaque and a moon-like object in the upper left-hand corner. The being holding this wheel of samsara, the wheel of life, the wheel of samsara, is Mara, or Yama, the lord of death. Mara in the Tibetan, uh, in the Theravada tradition, Yama in the Tibetan tradition. And all of life occurs in this cyclic cycling existences called the wheel of life. And I'll explain each of the images. But first, it's important to understand that life of any form, in any plane of existence, at any period of time, anywhere in this universe or any other universe that's ever existed throughout all eternity, is depicted within this circle. But outside of this circle, outside of samsara, is the Buddha, pointing to the disk, the radiant disk that represents wholesome, beneficial deeds, and it represents Nibbana, the end of suffering, escape from samsara. And the tablet, the admonition on the tablet says, take this up, meaning the teachings of the Buddha, take this up and give that up. Give that up meaning cyclic existence. So take this up and give that up. Enter the Buddha's teachings like an elephant in the lotus pond, destroying the forces of the Lord of Death. One who mindfully engages in this way of discipline will leave the wheel of birth behind and bring suffering to an end. Yama, or Mara, is the Lord of Death, which means impermanence. Whatever is born eventually passes away. Whatever comes into existence eventually passes away. And it is ever-present in our life. The five skulls along the crown of the top of the head of the Lord of Death represents the five poisons. Ignorance, attachment, hatred, arrogance, and jealousy. The Buddha is pointing to the possibility of liberation, the possibility of transcending, if you will, the suffering of any form of life. 
It's not merely the Buddha pointing to a more subtle existence or a better, heavenly, exalted, refined existence. But it's the Buddha's pointing to Nibbana, the release from birth and death. And this happens through renunciation. When we see and can let go of what we now understand to be dukkha and the cause of dukkha. Renunciation, as Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche tells us, great Tibetan teacher during the last century, he says, renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, the vicious cycle of conditioned existence. And with it comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. The innermost circle of the painting shows three animals, a snake, a chicken, and a pig. Now this iconic representation was drawn and painted in the Tibetan culture hundreds of years ago, which was an agrarian society. And so the pig and the chicken and the snake are representative of what are known as the three unwholesome roots that fuel all existence, greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, normally I would look at the chicken and say, delusion. I'd look at the snake and say, aversion, and look at the pig and say, greed. But the Tibetans have a different understanding. They look at the pig and they say, desire, and they look at the chicken and say delusion, which is also not that far off, <laughs> if you've ever seen chickens in the barnyard or in the farmyard. Nevertheless, they're iconic representations of the three roots, the three unwholesome roots that fuels this endless searching for happiness. If we were to paint a contemporary tanka, using 21st century images of all that this represents, we might pick Wall Street for Hollywood for delusion, and let's see, um, uh, uh, a mushroom cloud or the falling of the Twin Towers as a representative representation of aversion or hatred. So we don't need to get confused by the animals uh, representing greed, hatred, and delusion. We can use any image, but at the center of all cyclic existence are these three unwholesome roots. The next circle outside of that shows half dark, half light, and in the dark area of the circle is a demon leading beings into the dark. It is 
the kalesis, the defilements that enter the mind, darkening the mind so that we don't see, we're not aware, we're not, we're not clear what's going on. And because of that, we, we head into the dark and the mind stays deluded and confused. The other possibility is to be led by a pious individual, in this case depicted as a monk, leading those who aspire to brighten their minds towards the deity, a heavenly-like being. Again, we can use any contemporary images that we understand represent the forces of darkness that lead people into delusion and ignorance and uh, confusion and bewilderment and just unhappiness and the forces in our society, contemporary society that lead towards better life, uh, a more uh, prosperous, a more compassionate, a wiser uh, life. And you can pick whatever images would represent that for you. In the next immediate concentric circle are five large panels. It's a pentad. And these depict six large areas of the mind. But they're represented in the lower pentad as hell, the right-hand pentad as the hungry ghost realm, the left-hand pentad as the animal realm, the upper right as the human realm, and the upper left as the heaven realm. These are representative of thoughts, feelings, emotions, aspirations, behaviors that we all experience as a human. We don't have to go to those planes of existence. And whether those planes of existence actually exist, most of us cannot confirm for ourselves. So rather than ask you to believe in planes of existence and heaven and hell and all that, just look at your own mind as I talk about the kinds of experiences that beings have or experience when their mind is in these realms. And basically, these five pentads are representative of different personality types because different personality uh, structures or the basic personality structure uh, is represented as different realms of being. In the lowest pentad, or the hell realms, is representative of our mind when we're caught in hatred, anger, aggression, where we just have a tremendous amount of heat, and aggression and brutality towards ourselves and towards each other. Now, let's face it, most of us aren't making a big, uh, we aren't uh, living in a hell realm, but all of us have traversed that mental terrain somewhere during this retreat. When you've recovered some memory of some argument or someone or some time in your life where you were just, well, angry, hating, aggressive, and the suffering 
that the mind feels then is depicted in this painting. There is the, uh, the, the suffering of the hot hell, the mind that is burning up with anger and hatred. There is the representative representation of the cold hells, the icy cold hells of feeling isolated and being cut off and suffering because of disconnection. There are many other uh, images there. I won't go into in too much detail, but there is the slicing hell where the body is sliced, where we feel the words that are coming at us are just slicing us and cutting us, or we use words to cut and harm and slice others. And we know how to do that. And we've had it done to us. And we can feel when people say words that are very sharp and how that feels. The mind is thrown into a hellish-like realm. So too is there a, um, a stabbing realm. There's a, it's depicted here with trees that when you climb up them, the limbs point down, and when you climb down them, the limbs point up, and they're like blades of swords. So wherever you go, whatever you do, you're just getting stabbed and pricked. It's just like, ooh, ooh. Everything is just so painful, and so we just feel uh, attacked by what is done and said and what we see, and everything is an assault, a pointed, painful assault on our mind. We've had that experience, and we've thrown a few barbs like that, too. So we don't have to, you know, as I said, we don't have to believe in heaven or hell, in this case, the different kinds of hell realms. We just have to look at our own mind and be honest with ourselves as how we feel when experiencing certain behaviors or when acting out in certain ways. And to represent them in this way is not so far from how we experience it. We should understand that this, this image of hell is really a projection of our mind that is consumed by aversion. And when the mind is filled with aversion, when we look out on the world, this is what we see. We see people hurting us and harming us and you know, stabbing us and, and coming at us and, and cutting us down and putting us in our place and controlling us. And when the mind is filled with anger, we see unpleasantness. It looks like hell. Well, that's what the mind, the mind is making this, uh, is projecting this onto the world and what we see around us. To the right, or the between two and four o'clock, we could say, is what is called the hungry ghost realm. And the hungry ghost realm is the state of mind of those who are stingy, ungenerous, who are kind of attached and kind of greedy and, and kind of live a little bit with a sense of uh, deprivation and you know the the minimal minimize, minimizing of resources there's not much to go around i better get mine and keep it for myself and while that is the kind of the the, the state of mind 
the actual uh, depiction of these beings is beings with huge bellies, meaning they're just tremendous hunger, and yet they have a very uh, small mouth, the size of a pin, and a long, thin neck through which they can't get much food to nourish this extreme hunger and greed that they have for stuff. And so they are perpetually hungry. In this depiction, it, it is meant to show that beings who, have, who are caught in this kind of mind state see around them all of the stuff that could nourish them. They see others with plenty of food and comfort and nice homes and warm hearth and good friends, and somehow they're so pitiless and so uh, it, they're homeless and they're outside in the cold and they don't have enough to eat and they can't get what they see others enjoying. So you can see this is a pitiless and a powerless state. And it's a suffering state for ourselves when we are insatiably looking to get more, have more of what we see others enjoying, but that we can't get. And even if we get it, we're not satisfied for long. And so we want more, whether it's sex or power or stuff or possessions or recognition or fame or money, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is that we're wanting is a hunger in the mind through which uh, no matter what we do, we cannot get enough. So we feel, feel unfulfilled and alone, again, cut off from others. The pain of this kind of mind is that we search endlessly. We strategize endlessly. We try to get what we see is available to others, but not to ourselves. And we become fixated and obsessed with acquiring and getting and having what we believe will bring us pleasure and happiness. This is the mind of the obsessive, the addict, the compulsive uh, person. Now, we all have that tendency at times. We all relate to some periods of time or some events or some stuff in our life with an obsessive, addictive, compulsive, gotta have it, can't get enough of it, endlessly unhappy, fixated, powerless, pitiless, insatiable desire. You don't have to go be reborn in the hungry ghost realm. You just look at your own mind when this is where it's caught. In the left-hand quadrant between 7 and 10 o'clock is the animal realm. Now, I have to be careful what I say about the animal realm because many of us have pets. Many of us appreciate the whales that come to visit around Maui at, and they've just left at about this time of year. And we have 
animals, we know animals, we live in the same plane of existence as animals. And so we have uh, a lot of attachment to them. But generally speaking, animals live by instinct. And the three primary behaviors of animals is to eat, to sleep, and to copulate. That's what they do. That's their instinctual drives. It's just unlike ourselves. We have other drives, but we also have those three. And sometimes it's pretty intense. But generally, we should understand that when our mind is in the kind of the animal realm of behavior, we are often uh, driven by what we feel to be instinct, just human passion, instinct. Uh, often our behavior is very uh, routine, regimented, and we have a very uh, kind of a limited uh, way of approaching the challenges that we're faced in life, that we face in life, where animals really often cannot think of very creative solutions to, to deal with their conditions. They just follow kind of blindly what their genetic programming commands them to do. And so if we live out of our instinctual genetic commands, we live a very routine, predictable, uh, uncreative uh, lifestyle. Where animals are generally unable to rationalize and to figure out and to solve uh, complex uh, life conditions. Now, we know animals are not stupid. Animals got, they, they are very creative but there's not one of them that can understand the Dharma and distinguish between a life of mindfulness where there really is choice, even in the face of instinct. Animals just don't have that capacity or we don't know how to communicate with them in that way. And so when humans or when, when we find our mind stuck in the kind of the animal psychology realm, um, often overly serious, lacking in humor, easily threatened by the unknown, unpredictable, and often paranoid, where we live uh, with a lot of fear and the threat of aggression. And most animals live with some level of fear, being eaten, and some aggression to find their food in order to themselves survive. And sometimes we get ourselves caught in this mentality of just uh, survival instinct. And if you need to be aggressive to do it, then you do it. And you kind of look out for yourself and uh, get through. In the human realm, between 12 and 2 o'clock, we're pretty familiar with what goes on in the human realm. And the images here depict the activities, domestic activities, commercial activities, agricultural activities, and of course the spiritual activities of the Tibetan monks in the upper part of that picture. But the human realm, we're not preoccupied with suffering. 
not the suffering of anger and aggression, not the suffering of endless hunger that's insatiable and unsatisfiable, and not the delusion and confusion of kind of just living out of instinct. While we have some of those experiences, and we certainly can get stuck there for periods of time, generally our lives are not all suffering. There's enough pleasure, there's enough uh, resources to, to, to have um, some relief, I should say, from, from the other planes of existence or the other uh, mindsets or psychology or personality types that I've mentioned. But the human psychology in life in the human realm is characterized by competition and comparing mind, where there's this constant evaluation and comparing and looking and evaluating, comparing yourself with others. And, you know, I don't need to convince you of that. You see it. You know, if you've been paying attention this week, you've seen your mind comparing mind. And it can, and it can relentlessly compare, look at others, look at other situations, and, and your mind will compare and judge and evaluate and, and tabulate and, and peg yourself in relation to other people uh, along parameters which have no meaning or value whatsoever. Like how much they take as they go through the lunch line or who gets to the front of the lunch line, who comes to the end of the lunch line. Are you ahead of them or are you behind them? And so, it's like the mind just, no the human mind just notices these things. And, and if we're not mindful and, and just kind of like put the brakes on, we'll live our life obsessed by and compulsed by competition and getting ahead and comparing and, and, and living like that. Where the, 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 the motivation is the endless pursuit for pleasure, more pleasure, whether it's social pleasure, psychological pleasure, financial pleasure, sexual pleasure, power pleasure, whatever it is, we want more pleasure. And the mind is just scheming and strategizing, comparing and evaluating how to get more. If you don't believe me, look at your own mind. And you'll see that there are times that, that this is the drive uh, that, that uh, is happening. Hope for better and more is constantly being weighed against our fear of not getting enough. Hope and fear play central roles in the drama of a human life. And whatever happiness we acquire, that we achieve, that we experience through successfully acquiring the pleasure that we've sought is fragile and easily threatened by uh, you know, it running out, somebody else taking it, or some other happiness, uh, pleasure being available that we can't yet get. And so, while we may seek and acquire and attain some happiness, there's always more that we see others enjoying that we then have to pursue. Trungpa Rinpoche says of the human realm, in the human realm, you are stuck in an absolute traffic jam of discursive thought where it is extremely busy and there is no end to it. 
discursive thinking runs rampant, where we strategize and angle and try to improve our situation. Again, it's so obvious when you look at your mind and you see how we spend our time when we're not paying mindful attention. It's constantly looking and pursuing and strategizing and scheming and you know, making plans for getting more happiness, pleasure. But ah, to, to elevate ourselves above the, the human realm through spiritual practice, we enter the, the heavenly realms between 10 and 12 o'clock. Now, many spiritual practices aim for heaven realms, some experience of the heaven realms. But we should understand that life in the heaven realms is temporary. It may last for a long time, but it eventually comes to an end. Beings in this plane of existence, you can see that there's the kind of the lower heavenly realms at 10 o'clock and the high upper heavenly realms at 12 o'clock. And the lower heavenly realms are those beings who, having done good deeds, you know, to the extent that we practice uh, sila and we practice uh, generosity and we, 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 we live good human life, we become good human beings, then we get to experience, even, even here on earth as human beings, we get to experience a, a kind of a heavenly life where we have the happiness of, of abundance and, and a sense of well-being and our life is a little more refined. We're not just barely existing and scraping by, but we, we live a, a kind of an elevated life. And most of us in the West, whether we know it or not, are living at the top of the heap or awful close to it. We just have an abundance and we can be generous since we still have lots. And so we get to, to, to live this life because of, well, the quality of our mind. But not yet fully satisfied. The jealous gods, the lower realm gods, are, are engaged in ambition, envy, where they're constantly quarreling and fighting with those who are in a superior heavenly place, the Brahmins. Those are the human beings who have more power, more uh, prestige, more command, more money, more uh, just more recognition. And others of us who don't quite have that yet are kind of waging war with them. We want what they got. And you only have to look at what goes on in Wall Street, Washington, and Hollywood, and you see it in spades. It's just rampant. There's no, no shame in the, the constant competition and envy and undermining and trying to uh, get more of what those who have more have. When we as humans base our life on ambition, achievement, there's bound to be a tremendous amount of jealousy and paranoia. Trungpa again says that someone in this heavenly realm, this lower heavenly realm, his version or her version is that acquisition of extreme wealth, power, or fame is the way to go. 
and one is preoccupied with achievement and competition and always trying to be better than everyone else, always insecure and anxious, struggling to control the territory you've acquired and prevent others from taking it from you. Well, it's not quite so brutal and naked for us, is it? <laughs> some of the time. But some of the time it is. It's pretty, pretty obvious. When we experience jealousy or paranoia, where is it coming from? When we experience envy, you know, someone has something we want and we don't want them to have it. Envy, is, it, it comes. We, we may not be free of it yet. A lot of the mind of lower heavenly beings is occupied by intrigue. The intrigue of relationship. Who's on whose side? What can you get from this person? What do you have to protect yourself from against that person? And it's the, the kind of constant navigation of personal relationships in a, in a realm of intrigue so that nobody gets to take advantage of you and you at least get to hold your own and maybe get to take advantage of them. Trungpa again says, this, this realm is most accurately depicted by diplomats, where the intrigue of diplomatic relationship becomes one's whole lifestyle and what you say is infinitely and uh, calculated to have specific impact on others so that you are always presented in the best light and others, your competitors, are always presented in the worst light. Whew. I'm not so sure I want to be born there, but nevertheless, the mind, we find our mind there sometimes in spite of ourselves. The upper heavenly beings is called the Brahma realm, the God realms, where beings who are born here have just more merit. They have done more good, they have more power, more prestige, more fame, more recognition, and they just have more command of resources. And so no matter how much others in the lower heaven realms are attacking them and seeking what they have, they never win. And the Brahmas always win. They have enormous power. And the, the, uh, the primary uh, defilement in their mind is intoxication and pride. Because it said that in this realm, merely thinking of a desire, anything that you can desire, is immediately satisfied as soon as you think of it. Because you have, your mind has so much power. Whatever it is you think you want, you have it instantly. Beings here are born at the height of their power and prowess and sexual energy and vigor, 14 years old. And they stay at that really ripe, prime, energetic age for their whole life, hundreds of thousands of years, until five days before they die. And then the flowers of the lays around their neck begin to wilt, and they're served notice that their time is up, and everyone else starts to shun them because they're losing their power, they're losing their fame, they're losing their recognition, their prestige, and, and all that comes with it. But because 
they have this tremendous power and they just live for immense lengths of time and they're intoxicated. They have no interest in hearing the Dharma. While they could command performances of the Dharma, they have no interest in it because they're so inflated with their own um, distraction in their perfect health and their abundance and their comfort and their wealth and the happiness of their lives in heaven. Do we really want to aspire to that? More of that? <laughs> Sometimes we do. Like, get me to the heaven realm. I just want to sit there in kind of subtle, sublime bliss where the power of the mind is so refined and so strong, you can just hang out for the whole sitting. No anger, no defilements, no anything except pride. <laughs> Fully intoxicated with your own self-importance and achievement. Eventually, though, the power of mind wears off, the jhana wears off, the, the good sitting comes to an end, and along with it, the pride, the intoxication, the power, the prestige, the recognition, the self-regard comes to an end. And we find ourselves being born in another sense of self, which is, oh darn, here I am, back at ordinary reality, got to go do my yogi job or whatever, <laughs> and the state of mind, they just go on and on and on. And even today, we probably all have traversed all of these realms. We've had hellish moments, we've had hungry ghost times, we've had desire, we've had competition, ambition, comparing mind, we've had a good sitting, at least for a part of it, and we've gotten intoxicated by that and inflated and prideful and sorrowful and regretful and it just goes on and on and on and on. This is samsara. It's the wandering through all of these mental states endlessly. Kind of like willy-nilly. It's like, my God, who is, who is making me do this? Well, how is it all happening? I, I want to get off. I wanna, I'm ready to stop. I know that no matter where, which, which state of mind I'm born in, it's going to come to an end. There's birth. There's the enjoyment of that plane of existence, and there's the death. That sense of self is going to come to an end. And where your mind goes next is anybody's guess. We don't know. We don't know when we sit down whether we're going to have a hellish sitting or a heavenly sitting. Do we? We don't know. It just happens. How does it happen? Well, the next of the concentric, the outer circle of the concentric circles is a circle of 12 links, 12 little icons that show the impersonal nature of the unfolding of the mind. This is the teachings on dependent origination. This wheel is called the wheel of life, the wheel of uh, samsara, the endless cycling through rounds of existence. We could call it moments of selfing. This self is born, 
this sense of self is born due to certain conditions, certain experiences, and we endure it, either joyfully or regretfully or however, for a period of time, and it comes to an end, and then another moment is born, another sense of self comes into being, we have a thought, we have a body, we have a, a kind of an experience, and we enjoy it or not, and that comes to an end. And then another sense of self is born in the next moment, and some, something goes on. How does it happen? Well, as my, one of my earliest teachers said, the wheel is turning and you can't slow it down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. <laughs> of course, that's my, my early teacher, Jerry Garcia. So. The Buddha, with his omniscient vision of his own life from the infinite, inconstruable past to the present, he looked at this whole long existence and said, no first beginning of craving for becoming could be found. There's nowhere that it began, couldn't see it. But there has always been this longing to become, to, to, to self, to, to become a self. And then he asked, which is greater, the tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering on this long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing and from being separated from what is pleasing, which is greater, all of those tears or the waters of the four great oceans? And he answered his own question by saying, the tears that each one of you have shed from the sorrow of all this wandering is greater than all the waters in the ocean. And he explained why that is. He says, from an inconstruable beginning, beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on long enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned things, enough to become dispassionate, enough to be released. And this is how it happens. In the first icon at one o'clock, we see a picture of a blind person with their hands out in front of them, trying to find the way. And this is a depiction of ignorance. In the past, ignorance, not knowing the way things are, being deluded, not correctly seeing, is conditioning the beginning of this cycle in this particular time. Seeking security, happiness in what is impermanent, what is dukkha, what is liable to change. Ignorance is a very obstinate uh, tendency of the mind. It is, uh, my, our teachers speak of multiple layers of delusion that our sense of self is buried under. And we can just think of it as, well, the first layer of delusion is 
are you mindful of what's going on or not? If not, that's a layer of delusion. And even if you are mindful of what's going on, there's the possibility of understanding it wrongly. There's another layer of delusion. Or we make a self out of it when really it is just impersonal phenomena coming together. Another layer of delusion. And there's just multiple layers of delusion, confusion, misunderstanding that uh, we, in our sense of ourself, is buried under. But the primary ignorance or delusion that this picture represents is the ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. I spoke about the Four Noble Truths the other night. Remember the First Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha? When we're ignorant of the First Noble Truth of Dukkha, we seek happiness through sensory pleasure, believing that pleasure, if we can acquire enough of it, whether it's sensual pleasure or economic pleasure or social pleasure or psychological pleasure or physical pleasure, if we can get enough of it, we'll be happy. That is ignorance of the first noble truth. Ignorance of the second noble truth that craving is the cause for this dukkha is revealed when we assume that if I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. And as I mentioned the other night, that doesn't sound all that wrong. But when we're not aware and we're ignorant of the second noble truth, we believe that. And so we pursue and try to get what we want, mistakenly believing that if we get it, we'll be happy. Ignorance of the third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha, is believing that suffering comes to an end in the heaven realm. Although we have seen what it's like in the heaven realm. Jealousy, envy, pride, intoxication, always wanting more. But when we're ignorant of that, we think being born in heaven is going to be the end of suffering. Or we think that Freedom from suffering is some sort of emotional oblivion that somehow if I could just not have the emotional upsetness that somehow that is going to be freedom from suffering. Others believe that other forms of ignorance of the third noble truth is that I'll be saved by some benevolent being. And it's not only in Christianity, but that someone, my guru, is going to save me from suffering. I'm going to get some transmission or I'm going to get something that's going to free me from suffering. Another form of ignorance or delusion about the third noble truth is thinking that I'm already enlightened. I'm already free. I just have to recognize it. That is ignorance of the third noble truth. Ignorance of the fourth noble truth is believing that if I'm just a good person, I'll surely be happy. And while that is a, a piece of it, if 
I don't make trouble for anyone, then that is enough. That's a piece of it, but as we can still see, being a good human being, not causing others problems, your mind can still drive you crazy. And so the, the, the fullness of the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, when one is not aware of it, uh, we, we take a limited slice of goodness and misbelieve that that is going to be enough. So it's ignorance. It's this kind of ignorance that is the seed for the second in the links, which is a picture of a potter busily spinning on his potter's wheel making cups or making some kind of vessels. Link two represents karma, the acting and the, the making of action, speaking and acting in such a way out of intention, seeking to gratify our desires, which we have ignorantly, because of ignorance and delusion, mistakenly thought are going to bring us happiness. So the ignorance of the first link conditions the actions of the second link. And these karmic actions are whatever we do, whatever we say, in seeking sensual pleasure or spiritual pleasure or uh, meditation pleasures. Even these can be the karmic actions motivated by unskillful or deluded mistaken beliefs. Everything we do is a karmic act. Every thought we have is a karmic act. Every time we speak is multiple karmic acts. Every time we move the body, multiple karmic actions. All planting seeds of result. Something is going to result from that. If the action is motivated by wisdom and compassion and generosity and understanding, then it's said that the result will be pleasant. If the motivation for the actions and speaking and, uh, and whatever we're thinking is based on self-aggrandizement or confusion or uh, lack of compassion, then it is said that the result will be unpleasant. Did you ever wonder how your mind knows where to go next? You know, you just sit down, you turn your attention to your breath, and you say, stay here for a while. And suddenly, your mind is off in some, somewhere else. Where does the mind go? Well, the Buddha looked at this tendency of mind, and he realized that the mind goes to one of three places. It goes to something you've done before. And we know well, there's a lot of remember remembering. There's a lot of previous karma that we review. I call it the personal history review, where stuff you've done in your life just comes up oh, endlessly. And some, some of it's just totally insignificant. And some of it is deeply traumatic from far into the past, often that you haven't remembered for years, and yet it's still in the mind, and it comes up, and the mind goes there. Or 
if it isn't going to a previous karmic act, it goes to some symbol, some sign, or some implement used in that karmic act. Whatever, and this can be wholesome karma or unwholesome karma, but nevertheless, it goes to things from the past. Sometimes we're planning, and we're planning future karmas, and so we are planting seeds for future destiny. You know, where we want to find ourselves next. And so the mind goes off into the future. And the Buddha said, these thoughts are karmic. They are planting seeds of, you know, where your mind goes in planning is where your mind will be in the future. We experience this when we see the mind skipping from moment to moment to moment, from a fantasy to a memory to a plan to a strategy to a, it's just, it's just endlessly unfolding, always centered on ourself. We can't control it. We know, we've tried. You can't control the mind from just unraveling in this way. You can develop samadhi, and you can get some temporary relief. You can get into a very refined, sublime, exalted, subtle state, but it comes to an end. And when it comes to an end, the mind will be right back here, endlessly tumbling into one memory after one plan, endlessly. It's said that as we approach death, even now, I mean, when in the, in the best of health, all of us are pretty healthy, and vigorous. Even now, it's hard to keep an eye on the mind. It's hard to control the mind. But it's said that as we approach death, the mind gets weak, and it's impossible to control the mind. So whatever you haven't let go of yet will be scrolling by the mind incessantly. And you can't stop it. You can't stop it. When, it is said, when the time for this life to come to an end occurs, the mind will be unraveling, just as it has been this past week. It'll just be unspooling all of this stuff. Past karmas, future karmas, it's just going. And as the time for this life comes to an end, and the unspooling of the mind is continuing, with or without awareness, there will be a point when this life ends. But the unspooling of the mind doesn't stop. Think about this. Just because you have one memory and a sense of self emerge from a memory, and you're dealing with that sense of self, you know, the shame, the fear, the blame, the game, whatever, you know, da 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 da, and finally, <sighs> You see it, and it comes to an end. In the next moment, there's another one born, another sense of self, another memory, another plan, another idea, something else you gotta deal with, another sense of self. What's the relationship between the ending of that first one and the uptake of the next one, the subsequent one? Cause and effect. There's no same, it's not even the same person, 
we don't, we, there's no, it, it may not be, it may be from a totally different time of life, a totally different mind state. Nevertheless, there is a cause in the past giving rise to a condition in the present. At the time of death, it is said, when the last moment of mind takes its object and life is cut off, the conditioned result is the first moment of the next life. Some say the moment of death is the most important moment of life because it conditions your whole next existence. Well, we don't have to believe that. I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm just asking you to look at how your own mind has unraveled and unspooled over these seven days. And you can just see. And, interestingly, as the days go on and you get more mindfulness, you, you, you see it more clearly. And in some ways, there's, I can't say there's an improvement so much because sometimes on the last day of the retreat, it's worse than ever. But there's more clarity and there's not so much holding on. And we, let, we see it a little quicker, we're a little more tolerant, we have a little more equanimity, we're a little less reactive. And so all of that is good signs for a better rebirth or better next existence if it's next moment or if it's next birth. Take your pick. Conventionally speaking, we say a person dies and the stream of consciousness continues on and another being is born. But in our stream of consciousness here, we say a sense of self dies when finally the energy of this obsession runs out. And in the next moment, another sense of self is born. This reborn, or this coming into new existence, is depicted in the third link, which shows a monkey. In this case, it's a monkey reaching into a building. Actually, the traditional image is a monkey swinging from one vine or limb to another one. And it symbolizes or represents consciousness moving from one life to another, you know, letting go of this one while simultaneously picking up the next one. <clears throat> and this third link is consciousness because the only thing that, that passes from one moment to the next is consciousness. The physical material elements of this moment are gone in the next moment. The mind of this moment whatever state of mind you're in, is gone the next moment. The only thing that passes is the cause-effect relationship of consciousness. So, so too, at the time of death and the time of rebirth, consciousness is the relinking uh, moment. And the subsequent stream of consciousness is depicted in this link number three. We could say that ignorance, link number one, and karmic actions, link number two, that occurred in the past give rise to consciousness, link number three, in the present. Now, when consciousness arises, there arises with it link four, five, six, and seven. Let me explain them. Link number four, conditioned by or caused by consciousness, is two beings in a boat being carried across the river. 
these two beings represent nama rupa or mind and body. When consciousness takes form in a being, it comes with a mind and a body. Maybe it's a subtle heavenly body, maybe it's a gross uh, hell being body, nevertheless there's a body and the mind is a stream of consciousness that goes along with it. Link number five is, shows a picture of, well, it shows a couple houses. It should show, or traditionally it shows, one building with six openings, six windows or doors in it. This represents the six sense bases of life. The eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, because it is through the sense doors that we contact or get access to consciousness. Without the sense doors, no way of knowing what's going on in the mind. It's only through the sense doors that we can find the mind, or we get access to the mind, the consciousness. So these sense doors are the sense, sense doors of perception, conditioned by the fact of having a body and a mind. <clears throat> and because of sense doors, the six sense doors, in link number six, we have contact, depicted here as two lovers embracing. When two lovers embrace, there's contact, and we know what that's like, contact. So the sense doors contact, eyes contact sights, ears contact sounds, nose contacts odors, tongue contacts taste, body contacts tactile sensations, and the mind contacts ideas, concepts and ideas. When there is contact, there is feeling, link number seven. This is depicted as a being with a thorn stuck in their eye. Now, why, I mean, th that'd be some feeling. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's how they depicted it, the ancient the Tibetan agriculture community. Now, I challenge you to find another image that represents feeling, pleasant and unpleasant, better than that. Nevertheless, because of sense doors and the inevitable sense contact, there will be feeling. Every sense contact has a feeling. Whatever, whatever you feel with the body is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whatever you experience with the mind is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whatever you experience is a smell, a sight, a sound, an odor, whatever, is experienced or has a, an element of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It is this feeling which feels pleasant and unpleasant. It's this capacity of mind, I should say, that, that knows the experience because it feels it. That's why it's so important to feel your experiences, feel your mind, feel your aversion, feel your qualities of mind when they arise. So I'm going to move along so we can wrap this up this lifetime. <laughs> So, <laughs> okay. So we have feeling. Because of feeling, due to feeling, conditioned by feeling, is craving. When the feeling is unpleasant, we crave relief. And relief in the form of aversion to the unpleasantness. When the feeling is pleasant, we crave more of it, so we get attached to it. Craving in link number eight 
is depicted by a man drinking a cup of tea because the, the craving is a translation of the word tanha, which means thirst. The mind is thirsty for more pleasant and aversive or getting away from what is unpleasant. So link number eight is a man uh, drinking a cup of tea, depicting thirst or craving, which is conditioned by feeling. Whenever there's a pleasant feeling, craving happens. Craving to get more pleasant or avoid the unpleasant. When there is craving, the mind desires something. It imagines, it clings to, it imagines getting relief from the unpleasant or getting more of the pleasant. And out of this imagining is, uh, we, we grasp onto the fixed idea of how to get what we want. And this is depicted in link number nine as a monkey grabbing a piece of fruit. And it's depicting the grasping, the grasping of the idea how to get what we want, how to avoid what we don't want. It is like a, a magnified craving. Because now, not only are we just craving some sort of relief, we've got an idea in mind of how to do it. And the mind grasps onto this, this idea. With this grasping, with this grasping of an idea, there always comes a sense of self. Me, in the future, getting what I want. Or me, in the future, getting away from what I don't want. This me is shown in link number, the next one, 10, uh, at uh, just north of 9 o'clock, where there's a, a, a pregnant woman. And this pregnant woman is represented, rep represents becoming. Where am I? Link number nine, clinging. Craving, clinging, yes, becoming. Ten. That's number 10. Yeah, no, link number 10 is becoming, where we take actions to create this sense of self that is now getting more of what we want or getting away from what we don't want, planting the seed for... Uh, future existence, becoming of a self. Whatever it is we need or think we need to, to be happy. This taking actions to become what we want or to get what we want is shown in link number 11 <clears throat> as a woman giving birth. Suddenly we, 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 we are born into the new sense of self of getting what we want or getting away from what we don't want. And so we take up birth, and a new sense of self comes into being, along with it, a body, a mind, feeling, sense doors, contact, pleasant, unpleasant, craving, and, and this whole sense of being. Once we take birth, there is the inevitable living out of that life and the uh, death, the aging and death depicted in link number 12. Whatever sense of self comes into being is going to live out its life, and it's going to come to an end. And, and pass away. Actually, every moment is a, is a rebirth of a sense of self. And every moment uh, is, a, is a, a, a death of a sense of self. And with that loss of that sense of self, uh, there must be grieving. There must be grieving. 
because sometimes we lose what we, you know, it comes to an end. Our good fantasy comes to an end. You know, we get lost in some fantasy of what we're going to be doing in the future, and, and then the bell rings. Whoa. Kind of like we're out of it. And this fantasy, this sense of self that was so happy in that fantasy, gone. And if we're not careful, we'll just try to get it back next sitting. <laughs> so, our, our good friend Jack English says, uh, learning, uh, um, insight practice is learning how to grieve effectively. Really. Because everything that you've experienced, ever, anything you've ever experienced in your life, gone. It's over. It doesn't exist. There's a tremendous loss happening all the time in our life. And often in, in insight practice, when you, really, when you really see this is what's going on, it's just a tremendous sense of loss and a tremendous grief, sometimes sadness, sometimes just a recognition of how this is just the way it is. It's just the way it is. You can't hang on to anything. And there's the inevitable death. And then with, with that is the pain of loss and the, the death of that sense of self. This is uh, this, this circle of these 12 links doesn't happen to anyone. It is just cause and effect. Link one, the ignorance causes the karmic actions. Karmic actions causes the, the relinking consciousness or, or, or rebirth consciousness. Along with it comes a body and mind that conditions sense, con sense doors, that conditions sense contact, that conditions uh, sense contact. That conditions feeling, that conditions craving, that conditions clinging, that conditions becoming, that conditions birth, that conditions death. The con and along with this whole life comes more ignorance, which conditions more actions. And this whole circle, this uh, cyclic existence of dependent origination, goes on and on without there being anyone, anyone to whom this is happening to the extent that we get identified with any one of these links, any karmic action or any sense of self or any body or any feeling, it seems like there's a me that this is happening to, but in the next moment, that me is gone. <clears throat> this cycle just goes on and on, traversing all the realms that we talked about, the heaven realms, the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, the human realms. It just goes on and on and on. And as we see in our own mind, we can, we can traverse all these realms in one sitting. And it just goes on. Ask yourself, really, now you're, some of you are 20, in your 20s, some of you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It's been going on for a long time, this lifetime. When is it going to come to an end? When is it going to come to an end? How much more of this do we have to endure? Really? I mean, is it possible? Does it come to an end ever? Do we just die and pick up where we left off next life and just keep going again? We've been doing this, the Buddha says, for so long that the tears that we've cried in our collective lifetimes is more than the waters in the ocean. We've been through it all. We've seen it all. We've done everything, infinite number of times, 
all the heavenly actions, all the hellish stuff, all the good karma, all the bad karma. We've broken all the precepts hundreds of thousands of times. We've practiced as monks and nuns hundreds of lifetimes. It's still going on. Aren't we tired yet? <laughs> Haven't we had enough? The Buddha said, we've lived long enough. We should have seen it all by now. We've seen it all by now. We've lived long enough to, to, have, to now be ready to give up anymore. Do we need to do it again? One more time, just for good old time's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it's burdensome, isn't it? it? And when you think of it, sometimes it's like, holy, you know, why am I carrying this on? We carry it on because we don't let go. We don't let go. Where can we let go? How can we let go? When you look at all this, that's just happening without there being anybody doing it. Where can you let go? Obviously, the ignorance of the past that conditioned the actions in the past can't change that. That's a done deal. Being born in the present with consciousness, mind, body, sense doors, sense contact, constantly, it, I mean, here it is, here we are. We're experiencing all this, pleasant and unpleasant, just arising endlessly throughout the day. But it's right here. It's right here at this moment of pleasant or unpleasant that we can actually break the cycle of conditioned existence. Because pleasant and unpleasant feeling conditions craving, aversion or desire, unless there's awareness that feels the feeling with full awareness and doesn't get caught in craving the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant. In our instructions to you, we ask you to pay attention. Feel your experience. Feel it. Feel your mind. Feel your body. When it's pleasant, feel it. Know that it's pleasant. Be careful not to crave more of it. Be careful not to get attached to it, no matter how subtle, how blissful, how exquisite, how ecstatic, how exotic. Craving leads to continued existence. Aversion is another form of craving. It's the craving of the opposite, isn't it? So when we have an unpleasant experience, unpleasant mental state, unpleasant physical experience, to have any form of aversion, fear, depression, anxiety, any kind of pushing it away. It's just like planting seeds for more cycling through. So we ask you to feel your experience because in the feeling of it with full awareness, you cut off the link or the causal condition for craving. And when you cut off the causal condition of craving, it all comes to an end with just feeling. Just feeling with full awareness. Feeling, 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 feeling. No more seeds of craving and becoming birth and subsequent death are planted. We just live out the feelings, that have the, the karmic result of past actions. And in this way, every moment of mindfully being aware of your feelings temporarily breaks the link of causal conditioning.
in time, that link is broken. And there'll be no more karmic actions to plant seeds for future birth and future suffering. And it all unravels and comes to an end. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. Pointing to take up this, the practices of the, the Buddha teaches. Sila, purifying your speech and behavior. Samadhi, purifying your mind. And Panya, through insight practice, purifying your understanding. So that you can break this linkage between ignorance and actions leading to feelings that leads to more ignorance, actions, and more feelings. What does it mean to bring this cycle of conditioned existence to an end? What does it mean? Because this is a graphic depiction, and we talk about it in terms of life and death, it seems like it all comes to an end and it just gets annihilated like somehow everything just disappears. And the Buddha said, no, that's not, that's not the end of suffering. When we break the link sufficiently, suffering comes to an end. That's all. Suffering comes to an end. Not rebirth in heavenly realm. No more rebirth and, and no more mental states of hellish mental states. No more hungry ghost mental states. No more heavenly mental states. The suffering of all that comes to an end when one practices the teachings of the Buddha successfully. Nibbana, the end of suffering, is ineffable. It's not on this map. It's not on this map. It's depicted by this little glowing disk here. It's outside samsara. It's outside the realm of birth and death and suffering. It is a reality. It can be experienced. It can be realized. It can be known. The practices that we've done here during this retreat, sila, living according to the precepts, samadhi, developing the continuity of mindfulness, and wisdom, developing the insight knowledge of impermanence, dukkha, and the not-self characteristic. This, these, this is the path. This is the path that the Buddha is pointing to. This is what leads to the renunciation of acting on your feelings. It leads to the end of suffering. practicing, we develop wisdom, and it's the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths that I spoke about the other night. By observing this mind and body, we really understand and come to accept the truth of dukkha. And by continually watching our reactions in relationship to our experience, we understand the craving that leads to that dukkha. And 
as I mentioned in the talk on the Four Noble Truths, we have moments of dukkha-free experience, putting aside the hindrances, intentionally letting go of the wandering mind, developing great equanimity, developing insight, and ultimately realizing nibbana. And we understand the fourth noble truth, that these practices are the path. By putting aside ignorance, we put aside craving, we put aside this whole cycle of conditioned existence of suffering. Again, Dilko Kinsi Rinpoche says, what we normally call the mind is a deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. And this mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred, attachment suddenly arise without warning. And unless they're immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred and attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. But renunciation is the way to let go, learning to let go of all of this suffering of samsara. Giving up the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. The wheel is turning, can't slow it down, can't let go, and you can't hold on. You can't go back, and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then enlightenment will. Okay. So let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.